welcome to another episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and today I'll be talking to George Washington III. George is a veteran voice actor who has performed in pretty much every genre out there, including commercials, e-learning, promo, and more. He's also a speaker at VO Atlanta, a huge voiceover conference that's all virtual this year. I'll link the site in the show notes. Our conversation today is an important one. George generously shares his experiences as a Black voice actor, and we talk about what that looks like in the industry today. It's a really eye-opening conversation and one that we all need to be a part of. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with George Washington III. Well, hello, George Washington III. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I feel like I have to say your full name because it's such a cool name. And, <laughs> and so I said, it, I said the full thing. I, I accept that. It used to be a big thing to differentiate me from my father. Gotcha. So welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. And we start every episode by asking the same question, which is, tell us about your voiceover journey. How did you make it to the mic and what did you do before voiceover? Well, I was an IT person, I guess is the best way to put it. I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina to work for uh, one of the big banks. I guess I can say the name because everybody knows it was First Union at the time and um, doing IT work and was asked to be a host for in-house videos. So I did that. And at one point I had to go to one of the local studios and record voiceover for one of the videos. And I went in and I said, hey, what would it take for me to start doing some voiceover work? They said, well, you're going to need to... uh, have scripts together and we'll make a demo for you for, I guess it was $300 at the, at the time. So 2000. What a bargain. Yeah. So that was 1990. No. So 2002, 2002 when that was going on. So yeah. (laughs) So, um, I went away for six months. I, you know, got scripts and practiced and, and did that. And yeah, I didn't get coaching. Um, but I went ahead and did it anyway. And they made my demo for me and I started doing, I got my first job, uh, in February of 2003 and I continued to do things here and there until, um, the last couple of years when I've been mostly full time at this. That's amazing. So did you have any acting experience, like even in high school or college, any sort of performance background? Well, I was a music major in college, and I sang with Opera Carolina for 12 years. Um, and yeah, I did some acting in high school, and you know, and then because I was a music major, I had some performance, I had a lot of performance experience. And so I was a performer all along. I and was looking for a way, ultimately, as I made it my goal to make my living with my voice. So that's where I am now. Um, I've done a couple other things. I mean, I did some on-camera work for um, commercial acting and, and that sort of thing. And up until the end of last year, I was, for three years, a part-time traffic host for one of the local television stations. So I'd fill in for the traffic guy when he had to take time off. I love that. So I love that you had that music training and you always kind of knew you wanted to do something with your voice. And I love that voice acting was what you kind of brought you back around. It was a very interesting path to get there in that I thought that, you know, maybe I can do this as a singer, 
Uh, but it takes so much, um, not just training, but going, you know, and being having to go places to do that, not just in town. If you think you're going to be successful at that, you've got to be able to go other places out of town. And at the time with my family, um, I was not able to do that sort of thing. And I was still determined to find some way to be um, able to make my living with what I produce vocally. I had a similar experience. I was a musical theater major and I pursued musical theater professionally in New York. And at some point after I um, you know, was dating my now husband and we got engaged, I started thinking, I don't really want to go places anymore. I don't really want to be apart. I just kind of want to stay here. But, you know, you can't just be on Broadway. So in that interim period, I I kind of had a a similar aha moment that I wanted to do something still performance related, but I wasn't ready to just pick up and leave for any tour regional production that came my way. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to is can you do that? Do you want that? And it is not as simple as all that. I will ask you, I'll ask you a question. What's your dream role then? Oh, gosh, no one's asked me that in such a long time. Um, well, I feel like I've always wanted to be in Wicked. Mm-hmm. It came out right when I graduated from college and moved to the city, and I saw the show before I ever heard the soundtrack because it hadn't come out yet. And um, so I feel like that's a special one. Like That's kind of always in there as like a dream production to be in. I don't even know who I'd be. Maybe Nessa Rose. Mm-hmm. Just be in it. I have always been, um, from a from a musical standpoint, I wanted to be Javert in Les Miserables so badly. Oh, I can hear that. That's my, you know, that's my guy. That's my piece. Stars is the piece that I've sung a lot. And uh, I, that's one I always wanted to be. But also now... I want to be George Washington. You know, I would love to be George Washington playing George Washington in Hamilton. <laughs> right? Lynn, if you're listening. I'm out here. I, I'm getting, I'm, I got the chops. I've done uh, History Has Its Eyes on You in front of people. There you go. I love it. That's amazing. Um, have people always told you, my gosh, you have such a cool voice. You should do voiceover. I feel like people probably have said that to you your whole life. They did. Um, People have said that and that, you know, it always plants that seed. Could I do it? And for the longest time, it seemed impossible. I mean, there wasn't a way. Nowadays, you can see there are many paths to get there. You know, there are coaches, there's programs, there's ways to do it. Years ago, it seemed like this is impossible. I don't know who to even talk to to get started. And uh, the opportunity that presented itself actually made it possible. So, yeah, I've heard it a lot. It's one of those things that um, I wish I'd taken advantage of sooner, Mm. had been able to do earlier. But here we are, and it's going okay. So when you got started after you made your demo and you booked your first job, where did you kind of land genre-wise? Were you doing mostly commercials or corporate work? I kind of did a mix of both. Um, commercials of all shapes and sizes. I am what I like to call a jack of all trades and master of none in that <laughs> I have done all almost every kind of voiceover with the exception of toys. So I've done audiobooks and I was a promo voice for a sports network for 6 years and television commercials and 
you know, a little bit of animation and things like that. So I've been kind of all over the place. When I started out, which I, you know, when I tell people who are getting started in voiceover, you're usually going to be starting either in some kind of narration or some kind of commercial and moving from there. What was your first job? My first job was a commercial for the Augusta Chronicle newspaper, which I don't think even exists anymore in Augusta, Georgia. And it was an ISDN session that I had to go to a studio here in Charlotte that doesn't exist anymore either, um, Jay Howard. And I was there with some experienced voiceover talents and me, newbie. And we stood all in a studio and did our lines, which, you know, you never do anymore, right? You're rarely, if mm-hmm. you're doing a, a, a dialogue or multiple voices, you're never there at the same time. Everybody's doing their stuff independently or over, you know, Source Connect. But this actually leads to my favorite story in when I started in voiceover. So we did our lines. We did the first run through. And the person directing was on the line, and they said, that was great, everybody, real good. Um, George, uh, could you um, um, could you sound more black? And I said, yeah, if you want me to sound is like that, is that you want me to sound more black like that? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. And so I did. Code switching, it's a thing. So how did you feel in that moment? Well, in the moment, you know, I was brand new. This is my first job. There are other people there who already have been through everything. And it was a little embarrassing, right? The very first time, this is not something that hasn't been said to me before, right? You don't sound black enough. Hmm. Um, And that's just part of, you know, that has become part of our world, although, um, this is something that we've been that's been talked about a lot about ethnicity and black characters and black voices and knowing that not every black person sounds this way. The problem is there's a way that people have it in their head that a black person should sound. So in the moment, yes, it was embarrassing. It was a little frustrating. I look back at it now and I do laugh at it because they really just didn't have a tool in their toolbox to say it properly. Right. Or any way to say it. And even now, there's not a great way to say it. You know, we went through urban. You know, people needed to sound urban. And, you know, what has helped them is people who have been used to just then using celebrity references without having to say it. Right. We need an African-American voice. We need them to sound like this person. But uh, it's still... A challenge. I don't know if you've seen this, the recent outrage about how the people who are voicing soul in another country in Europe used white voice actors to do the voices of the black characters in the film. Yes, I did see that. Um, Somebody posted it in one of the Facebook groups and I saw there were comments kind of all over the map of people who were saying, you know, there are no black voice actors in that country. So they had to use white actors and people saying it doesn't actually matter. We've got to find them or train them or something. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? When I look at this, I see it as don't deprive people of opportunity who traditionally have not had opportunity. Oh, I love that. That's what that's about. If you 
cannot find someone to do it, you haven't looked hard enough. You don't have the right, you haven't gone through the right channels. You haven't found the people you need because you decided it was easier to do it a different way. There are black voice actors all over the world. It is not impossible. So it's, you know, I, I understand the, the ease with which you can say, well, they just couldn't find any. I doubt it. It, it, it's one of those things that it, it gets on your nerves. It's a fight that we have to just keep fighting mm-hmm. um, because the idea that people cannot be adequately represented is wrong. It's incorrect. We have proven that over and over and over again, that that's not what is the facts on the ground. Do you think things have changed in more recent times? I know for me as a white woman, I haven't experienced the same things in the business as you have and didn't have to think much about it before. But yeah, over the last year, I feel like there's been a bigger push in the industry to have better representation. Like in animation, of course, the voice actor's ethnicity should match that of the character. Yeah, it has changed in that, yeah, last year with all of the George Floyd situation, a lot of companies and a lot of you know, casting directors, everybody decided, you know what, we need to address this in the way that makes sense for the people who need these opportunities, who can provide these opportunities on a professional level. You know, you see um, audition requests that come out looking for more multi-ethnic voices. This is a slow journey. Like Moana, they actually went and got people, for the most part, who are of that ethnicity to perform. There are things that they didn't. You know, you don't always find everybody, but you have to make a good faith effort to do so. What was it, a couple years ago, not even a couple years ago, the big thing about um, BoJack Horseman was the fact that Alison Brie was voicing a Vietnamese character. That, you know, that probably shouldn't happen anymore. <laughs> you know, because surely there are people out there who can do it. And the kind of stunt casting that you need to do for animated series don't ha- doesn't have the same kind of impact as it used to. So you might as well voice people who, are, who can speak in the way that you want them to speak, quote-unquote, natively, or the way they've always spoken. I've noticed on castings, too, that they're specifically writing things out more, that they're seeking diversity, which is new since last year. And, well, it shouldn't be new, but it is. There, you're right. I've seen that more as well. And that's the... Thing, like you're saying, it shouldn't be new. It doesn't feel like it's something that we should be just now discovering. It's 2021, or at least, you know, last year is 2020. Why is it taken till now? But it is happening and we'll take it. I'm, you know, I can complain about what it was, but the fact that it is slowly changing is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And I hope we keep seeing this progression and change. So, Uh, To switch gears a little bit, I'd love to talk about your promo work because, um, you know, that's a specific area of the voiceover business that I think sometimes can feel like a mystery. So what is promo? So promo is essentially imaging for television. And so if imaging's the mystery, you know, commercials that are done by a radio station for the radio station, promo is the same thing on the television side. So anytime you are promoting the stuff that is for that station and created by that station... That's promo. Now, for six years, I was the promo voice for Root Sports Northwest when um, that 
circuit of stations, or actually that cable station was sold uh, to DirecTV. That's what it was. DirecTV rebranded it. It was Fox Sports Northwest. They rebranded it to Root Sports along with two others, Root Sports Mountain and Root Sports Pittsburgh. And so I picked up that job, and for six years I did stuff that aired in, let's see, it was Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Alaska, and sometimes Utah when they'd have me do stuff for the Utah Jazz for Root Sports. So I would say things about the Seattle Mariners, uh, the Seattle Seahawks, um, college football in that area, uh, hockey, all of those things. And so I would do the, the things for the Portland Timbers, the MSL team, MLS team, uh, and the Seattle Sounders, the MLS team there. So just a, a flow of I'm doing all these spots for them. And it was a retainer job, which is always nice. Ooh. Here's your money. However much we need you over the month, that's what we'll, u- we'll use you for. Okay. Sounds great. So I have just recently redid or did a new promo demo, and I am looking to do more of that kind of work myself. I think your voice is suited to it. It's, you know, it's, it's like, I feel like that genre has like a very specific sound. Yes. I can't describe what it is, but it's something that's like intensity. That's not the right word. But do you know what I mean? There's like something about your voice that's like kind of cuts through and makes me want to stop watching what I'm doing and figure out what's what program I should be watching next. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope more people think that. (laughs) So what is a promo session typically like? So with a promo session, you're going to do, they're very short in general because the things that you're doing aren't going to be full length 30 second spots in a lot of instances. So you're going to do repeats of lines. You're going to do this line over, this line over, this line over. And you're going to give them different, you know, intonations of it. And the big thing is they are different styles for different cable networks. Mm. Like HBO is all generally fairly quiet. They're going to do things like this, Lovecraft Country, as opposed to doing things for the NFL, doing things for Fox. So it, it ends up being as varied as the commercial world is only very targeted as far as I'm doing these for these shows. And you break those things up, you get the scripts and you do lines that are very separated, right? So you may have only five lines in the thing and they're going to cut those up and put those together to make that thing fit. Gotcha. So your lines are sort of interspersed with like scenes from the football game or something like that, right? Right, exactly. So bits of, you know, bits from the show that you're that you're promoting, they're going to be interlaced in that. So your sound has to come through because it's usually it's not going to be covered up, but there's usually something else going on. And that's the way it works. It's in parts. It's going to be short. Um, and you rip those things off and get them out there quickly. The thing about promo is that Uh, as I understand, at least the way that they do it when you're doing this kind of network stuff, is that your availability is kind of is super key because this stuff changes regularly, you know, on a you know daily or weekly basis, there's going to be new things. That was, yeah, that was going to be my next question. I've heard in the promo world that you just sort of have to be around and available and that promo moves very quickly. And you could get a call right now saying in 20 minutes, we need you for a session. It's going to be 15 minutes. You've got three scripts and done. Yeah. For example, 
when the Seattle Seahawks played the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. I was watching the Super Bowl that evening, and they were um, beating the pants off the Broncos. So at halftime, they called me and said, run upstairs and record the congratulations for them. Oh, that's so cool. Record, record those right now so that it was done, and when the game ended, they aired that night. That's incredible. Are you a sports fan? Did you enjoy doing all the sports uh, promos? I did. As a matter of fact, here's the funny thing about this. So I'm from the Chicago area. So I know I grew up around, you know, Chicago Cubs, Bears, White Sox, stuff like that. The Bulls. When I started doing things for Root Sports, there was used to be a message board called Lookout Landing that talked about the Seattle Mariners. And that was the bulk of the things I was doing was the Seattle Mariners. And they started a chat area or a board segment that was just about the voiceover stuff that was happening for them. And I found out about it and I kind of dropped in and said, hey, you know, kind of an ask me anything before there was really ask me anything's going on. <laughs> and I said, hey, I'm the guy who does the stuff for, for the Mariners for Root Sports. And um, let me know if you have any questions. And they were like, wow, here's this guy. Are you really a Mariners fan? I said, well, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> I live in North Carolina. I'm not a huge Mariners fan, but I do like them. And I've been to a Mariners game in Seattle. Everybody who asked me questions were very positive and, and, and grateful for what I was doing. And then the brand, quote unquote, the brand, Root Sports, reached out to me and said, thank you for being such a positive model for what we do. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel like if you are the voice of a network in some way, it's that's a lot of pressure to, you know, kind of live up to that uh, that aesthetic and that brand. Yeah. And the nice thing was, you know, I'm not really, you know, as voice actors, you know that we don't really do this for it's not a fame thing for us. We we don't get to be famous unless you are in a very, very select group. And even then, our fame is generally limited to us, unless you're working anime, right? right. <laughs> right? You know, and you're, you get fan bases that come from that. So it's interesting to to have people talk about you and, and talk about you in a positive way, but you really can't go out of your way looking for it, especially when you're doing stuff like those kind of brands, because you have to be a representative for them, even though you're not their employee, you still got to be positive and, you know, you don't want to run anybody down or make anybody feel bad because you'd like to keep that job. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had to run upstairs to your home studio. Did you always have a home studio or was that something that sort of evolved over time? Well, I, when I first started out, I was only going to local studios and working and then over time, I kind of evolved from having a just a, um, let's see, an Audio-Technica 2020 with an M-Box connected to a computer running of a cheap version of Pro Tools to moving on to better and better solutions. So um, probably 2000, I think it was 2008 when I actually started doing stuff primarily from home. And then um, as going through various life stages, I'm at the point now where I have a, um, I have a Studio Bricks One Plus booth that I work in. Nice. And I'm sure you've upgraded your mic since. Yes. And what do you have now? Yeah. So I have, um, at the moment, I am 
planning to get a uh, Neumann TLM-103 for my large diaphragm mic, and I'm currently using that uh, VO1A, the uh, MXL mic that's branded for Harlan Hogan, and I have a Sennheiser 416 that I use for different things. I want to be able to say I have this for these kind of this kind of work and this for this kind of work because I do e-learning and things like that, which don't come over all that well on the 416, at least not to my ears. It's just too sharp. So I need a large diaphragm mic to make that warmer feeling. And I'd like to be able to say, I have these two top of the line. This is where we are. So hopefully in the next couple of months, I'm going to upgrade to that. And my mic hunting and, <laughs> and choices will be set. Yeah, it's, it is a hunt. It is overwhelming and can be very daunting, especially if you're kind of living in that mid-range budget where you don't necessarily want to go as high as the TLM 102 or the Sennheiser, but you want a little bit better than sort of the the low ball mic and you're kind of in that mid-range. It just seems like, how do you ever choose what to what to go with? Definitely. You know, that's one of those reasons why you follow people like George Whittem and and see what they have to say about those things. Because, for instance, I know that in replacement of the 416, there is an AT or on sorry on an Audio Technica 875R, which does a really nice job of emulating that 416, and it's much less expensive. Hmm. So there are ways to do it, like you said, finding the mid-range microphone where you don't want to spend twelve hundred dollars on a microphone. When I tell people, you know, what microphones cost when they get started, people kind of freak out. I'm like, but I don't expect anyone to buy a $1,200 microphone out of the gate. Right. No one should. So there is that concern, you know, about what microphone do I want to get? We all go through that. Even as a professional, you know, like, should I do something different and so on? But, you know, you don't have to overinvest in microphones early. And for promo, that Sennheiser is sort of the gold standard. Is that correct? Yes. That's the one that they that people are looking for, and for the reason you said, so that it cuts through the mix. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the mics serving a purpose for the genres, because I feel like we kind of get in our heads about, like, how do we sound on the mic? And while that is important, there's also that second layer once you kind of get your feet into this, um, you know, deeper into this, that... You're right. You might need this mic for this type of work and this mic for this type of work and kind of got to find your way with with multiple versions. Yes. Uh, And I feel like now I I have the choices and I decided I would find a way that I don't have to mess around with mounting one versus the other. Mm. So I bought a bought this inexpensive little arm that fits on the arm that I got with the the booth. And so I can just turn one to the other, reach down and switch to a different input. So it's no effort at all to switch from one mic to the other. That's nice. That's so smart because I feel like even, you know, I know how to disconnect my mic and redo it, but it feels a little scary. Like, but this is where the mic goes and this is where (laughs) I go in relation to the mic. So if I switch it and then I have to do a pickup or something just sounds a little weird suddenly... That's really smart that you have everything kind of right in the same spot every time you go back to it. Yeah, it's it's very handy. It, it makes things a lot easier to switch around to say, okay, this is where this mic placement is. 
I don't have to worry about it anymore. And when I switch to the other one, just move the arm to where that goes. We're good to go. So do you have a favorite genre? I know we've talked about that, you know, you do promo, you've done commercials, you've done e-learning. Is there a spot that you're like, yeah, like this the best? Well, um, I mean, I really do like commercial work just for the the varying types of things you can do. You go from this, uh, you know, silly thing I did for the lottery earlier today for the Louisiana lottery where I was being, uh, uh, what they call it, the character Trombone Smith with this, you know, trying to talk like this, being that kind of voice for this kind of thing to being those heart tugging kind of things. I love the variety. Um, if you want to talk about individual kind of work, there are two things. One, I did, I was the voice of Green Lantern in DC Universe Online. So I don't do a lot of video games, but as a comic book nerd, it was just such a cool thing to play a character that you knew, right? Mm -hmm. This is my guy, right? So I got a chance to be a character that I already knew the, you know, I knew one significant part of his line set, which was the Green Lantern Oath. And as a matter of fact, I have a line from it in my wedding ring, which is super nerdy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so there's, you know, there's that. And then the work I did for the, um, National Museum of African American History and Culture. And so I did a series of stories, uh, for some of their exhibits, a referral from, um, a friend of mine who gave me that opportunity and to be a part of that place is just incredible. When it opened, I know that people like the president and the immediate past president at the time. So it was, uh, Barack Obama and George W. Bush heard me when they went there, you know, so that's just amazing. I have yet to get to the museum myself and hopefully in the next year that'll be okay to do. Uh, but it is an amazing feeling to be able to do that kind of work. Yeah. I feel like when you get those, even those auditions and those scripts that feel like you get it for whatever reason, whatever part of your history or your life it touches, if it's a product or if it's like something in your heritage and your history, it, it's when it aligns like that, it does feel really good. Definitely. You know, we talk about how, we're trying to communicate emotion. That's one of those things that as, um, as you know, I talk about this with, with people who are trying to get in the voiceover, that a whole, the bulk of what we're doing is trying to communicate voice or communicate emotion, but only with our voice. And we are limited in the tools we have. Stage actors, screen actors, they have their bodies to work with. You have, you have sets, you have. So when we have the opportunity to really lock in emotionally on what a script is asking us to deliver, there's not a better feeling than getting that exactly right. So I know that you also do some political work. So how does that kind of tie into the politicals that you've done? Well, I have have been a member of Blue Wave voiceover, and I do work for liberal, democratic, progressive candidates and causes. And because I've made that choice, I feel like I can feel good about the kind of work I do. Um, it's very specifically a, a, a choice I made. Um, years ago, I did a spot for a Republican candidate in Alabama. 
and I kind of wrestled over the thought of even doing it. I was like, do I really want to be doing this kind of work? And I, you know, a person said to me, look, somebody's going to make that money. You might as well do it. And I said, okay. So I did the spot and it was the most horrible fear baiting anti LGBT thing. And it just made me sick to my stomach. And I said, I would never do anything like that again. And when Maria Pendolino approached me about Blue Wave voiceover, I was all in because I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do this kind of work and it's going to mean something to me, I'm going to do it for people and for causes that I believe in. Yeah, there's I, I've known other people. I took a class once with a woman who said who said just that she said, you know, to me, it's just a job. I just sort of close my eyes and do it and I leave it in the booth and I don't worry about it. But um, yeah, it feels a little icky to endorse something with my voice that I just don't really believe in. And that could be something as big as a political campaign, like you were saying. And it could also be something small like cigarettes or some something else that just feels like, you know, I don't know if I want to lend my voice to that that product or that idea. Yeah, I have done a lot of... Uh... Mess, phone message, messaging on hold, marketing on hold work as well. And I have struggled from t- sometimes when the work has been for, say, a gun store. I, I just, I'm, okay, I get that people need this and some people feel this is a great thing, but it always just makes me feel uncomfortable to be pushing it the way they do. You know, I understand that actors do this all the time, Right people who are acting in films are not necessarily going to be that person. That's not what they're trying to say. But I understand that people make those choices and choose to do those things. Thankfully, I'm not in a position where I have to make that kind of choice or I have to play that kind of character. But it does kind of get in your head a little bit about doing things that you don't support. And I figure when I get into the things when you're voicing for candidates that I would not ordinarily support, I have to move past the, well, I'm, I need to make that money. I basically want to say if somebody really wants this and is able to do this without having the personal feeling about it that I do, let them have it. Hmm. And I feel like, again, it's just this time, I don't know if it's just sort of where we are in, in life and in politics and in the world. But this time just feels a little bit different. Like, I feel like maybe a few years ago, you know, people would have said, eh, all right, I'll do it. But now everybody's kind of thinking a little bit harder about the things that they're endorsing and the things that are out there because your voice is yours, first of all, and it lives. It's The internet is a vast and deep place of many, many things that, you know, someone could just type in your name, someone could find your your website, and who knows, you know. So I feel like there's like a permanence to it that maybe in years past didn't feel quite so heavy, and now it feels very heavy. Yeah, there's the change in awareness. Uh, it it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were discussing before about how we're being aware of the kind of casting we're doing. And now there's this awareness that your voice would be linked with this thing, like you said, forever. It may not, you know, may not become anything that's a, you know, 
that's famous and gets used over again, but you don't know that. It could. Right. You know, you do something that was, uh, that becomes infamous and, oh, there you are. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> no, no matter what you may think, there are people who think that's you. Yeah, it's like hard to separate because we live in this digital world where we spend so much time on our phones and TVs and computers. It's like the it feels like those people really exist. So is there a genre of voiceover that you haven't done a lot of, but you'd like to do more of? You know, I think about it on a fairly regular basis is should I make the effort to reach into a different genre um, like uh for me, the one that I that I'm not in that I would pro- I would think would be fun to try and do more would be in animation, um, and but I'm not. <laughs> it's funny I don't know that my I have the chops for it, you know, because I think about how you have to maintain character, and maintaining a character voice over a long period of time. I wonder if I'm there yet, so. It's one of those things. I try and think about it in a realistic sense. What would it really take for me to do that? Additional coaching, clearly. A lot of more practice and new demos and then trying to find my way in. But I would like to be able to play a villain, right? I'd like to be able to play a bad guy a few times. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think it's it's good for people to hear that even those of us who've been in the business a while have areas that we just either haven't had the opportunity to dive into as as deeply as we would like or you know we just haven't done it at all and it sort of calls to us but we kind of also realize like ooh even I would need more training even though I've done voiceover for a while and I'm comfortable in certain areas you know moving into animation from e-learning is like a completely different skill set a completely different mindset and and um I think it's good for people to hear that even the pros sometimes go uh, I probably need to take some more classes if I want to get into that. Oh, definitely. I, you know, one of the things that I tell, again, when I tell people who are interested or people who are starting out, I said, you don't, you don't just not get coaching anymore once you start working, because obviously you're going to pick up habits that may be good or bad. You're going to want different skills that maybe you don't know about how to acquire. And if there's, something like animation that I said, you know what, I'd like to do more about that. I definitely would have to reach out to someone who knows that, who can teach me those things. So I know what I have to do in order to create consistent characters, how to stay in character throughout the work that I do. What are the keys I should maintain? How do I create different voices that make sense? All of those sorts of things before I go, yep, well, I can do this now. That's not how this works, you know, and as you said, we, we, to be aware of what that is, it's okay to have interest and it's okay to aspire to that thing, but you have to make sure that you know what's coming and what that really means before you just say, yep, I can go do that. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I would love to know what is one thing that you wish you had known in your first few years in the business? I would say I wish I had known how much personal uh, kind of, not just work, that's kind of a simple way to put it, how much you need to be doing that is not really your voice. 
you know, the legwork that is actually has to go into this about reaching out to people, about making sure that you are staying top of mind with people that, you know, all your success means nothing if no one knows about it. And even when you do things successfully, you still have to remind people that you've worked with that you're still out there. You know, it's because they have lives. They do? Right? Surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) Shockingly, the people you work for have lives that have nothing to do with you. So that's the thing that you got to remember. You have to be aware that they are going through lives and other work and working with other artists. And you don't have to constantly poke your head in there and say, hi, hi, hi. But you do have to remind them every once in a while, hey, I'm out here. And if you need me and I can solve a problem for you, let me know. Awesome. I feel like we really covered a lot of ground here. And so I just want to say thank you for sharing with us so openly about about your your career and your life and, and all of your thoughts. And And it was so wonderful to have you. It's my pleasure. And if I can solve a problem for you in the future, let me know. (laughs) I just want to take a moment to thank George for speaking so openly about the issues affecting people of color in voiceover. It's certainly an ongoing conversation and one that we need to keep having because representation matters. I also love how candidly he spoke about how new genres can be challenging and it's okay to continue learning and growing by seeking coaching when you're out of your comfort zone, even if you've been in voiceover for a while. If you'd like to learn more about George, I'm linking his website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, www.stephaniepamroberts.com podcast. And to stay updated about future episodes, please follow me on Instagram at stephaniepamrobertsvo. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. And if you have a minute to leave me a rating or a review, that would be awesome. It really does help more people find the show. Thank you so much for listening, and here's a little preview of next week's episode. I will record a bunch of takes, and then I will listen back to them um, in the order that I recorded them in usually. And when I catch myself smiling without realizing that I'm smiling, that's how I know that's the one. That's next time on Making It to the Mic.